Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Chris Cosentino coming up in a little bit, but first I'm joined by my co-host this week. She's the owner of Avondale Food and Wine in Montrose. Mary Clarkson, welcome back to the show. How are you? Howdy, Eric. I am doing well. It is hot in August. It is really hot in August. Thankfully, it is nice and cool in the studio. (laughs) Let us dive right into the news of the week. Topic number one, Ibiza, the popular Midtown restaurant announced that it will close February 15th, 2020. This is not the most shocking news in the world. This, this, is, this rumor has been floating out there for some time. And of course, Grant Cooper and Charles Clark are giving people about six months to, to make those final visits to Ibiza, but still uh, the end of an era. Mary, I know you, uh, you're a, a Clark Cooper customer, a, a Clark Cooper diner. I am. What do you, how would you assess Abiza's place in the culinary landscape? It's like the OG gangster for me of this wine model that we see in Houston. Uh, Abiza launched this low markup for wine that many restaurants have followed suit, including myself. So, you know, we have Charles and Grant to thank for that kind of model. They were really visionaries ahead of their time. And that uh, kind of uh, aspect of, of their concept. And this is Charles's baby. He's worked the line at this restaurant since it opened. And uh, the closing of it or the not renewal of their lease of this is surprising in some ways and, and not in others. Uh, it's a much bigger group than they started out. This was This was their baby. So... Yeah, this um, is this is the this, this is the it. this is the restaurant the restaurant that launched an empire, right? There's no there's no Brasserie 19, there's no yeah, there's no Copa. B19 without this. Right. Uh, there's probably not even a Catalan, right? Which, you yeah. know, came and went but but launched Chris Shepard is a force in Houston. You know, they I mean, those Antonio guys Antonio Gianola, I mean, uh, Matthew um at under under Chris doing the wine. Uh there's a lot of people's careers that were maybe not launched here, but really catapulted from here. So, Yeah, I mean, Travis Lennig, the owner of Field and Tides, I know he worked at Ibiza for a long time. He may not want to admit that. <laughs> no, no, he's, he's very honest about it. <laughs> Travis is a good dude. But, yeah, I mean, as a, as a training ground, as a, as a wine model, as a midtown power lunch spot. Lunch spot as an attorney. Come on, this place is, I could say this place was always an attorney judge hotspot. Yeah, that and La Grilla, right? Those are kind of the, the lunchy. Friday lunchy. Yeah. Crabbos and Kirby, too. Sure. And Brennan's. <laughs> Always. Always <laughs> Brennan's. But, but, you know, at a time when, you know, this restaurant opened in like 2001, right? So at a time when. My sophomore year of college. <laughs> <laughs> when Midtown was, when Midtown was mostly Vietnamese restaurants and, and a couple of institutions, Brennan's, Damien's. They took a gamble. They took a huge gamble. I don't, I, I mean. That location was sketchy as all get out. <laughs> right. It's like, uh, we're going to open a restaurant next to Specs and see how it goes. But, you know, they, they were right about Midtown. They were right that Houstonians would embrace these 
basically retail style wine bar cups in a restaurant setting that it would prompt people to order instead of just ordering a glass of wine they might order a bottle instead of a bottle they might order two bottles so three or four whatever <laughs> however you know however you like to roll yes and and that fueled the growth of of their other restaurants and inspired right that that pricing model lives on at at reef you know that was a big emphasis for uh, Brian Caswell and Bill Floyd when that restaurant opened Chris Shepard's restaurants adopt sort of lower than standard wine markups. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, we drink better and more wine in Houston because Charles Clark and Green Cooper were open to Biza. Absolutely. No doubt about it. So will you go back one at least once oh, more? Oh, sure I will. I'm buddies with, with Charles. I'll go at least a couple times before they close uh, in the new year. I, I what will, will probably you go... get? What is the signature thing to get? <sighs> The, uh, that's a, a, a wine. <laughs> <laughs> um, they really had an amazing rosé and champagne list when they opened. It's a little different now than than it was in its its golden days, I would say. Um, but I will sit on the patio. I will have a couple of bo- bottles of wine and, and a few appetizers there. Um, Char-grilled octopus is pretty good, and they've always had a burrata and tomato salad that's really nice. I like to kind of mix some of those starters and make a meal out of that. Yeah. And this is not really the end of the road for, for Clark Cooper by any stretch of the imagination. Charles and Grant were on the show recently. They hinted that they've got some big plans uh, for 2020 and moving forward. So I hear they're opening a restaurant on Kirby with a chef from Uchi, but that's just what I've heard. <laughs> no <laughs> confirming on that yet, but, but you know, stay tuned. Yep. All right. Topic number two. You know, I, I always like to consult you on any news items related to Lower Westheimer. Perfect. So, since you own a restaurant on Lower Westheimer. Yes, sir. And there's a new, uh, the the replacement for a key has been announced. It's called Traveler's Table. Mm-hmm. First time restaurateur Matthew Mitchell, a former pharmaceutical executive, is getting into the restaurant game with what I can only describe as maybe like the most <clears throat> eclectic sounding restaurant i've heard about recently it's going to have indian food caribbean food he spent some time living in italy so it's going to have pastas steaks burgers lunch and dinner cocktails wine the whole the whole shebang uh it's being led by jordan economy a well-traveled houston chef who's worked high and low so everything from the eatsy boys food truck and rudyard's to Prohibition and Doris Metropolitan. Mary, I'm just going to throw it to you. What do you think? I mean, it sounds like you can, like, kind of like a food court. You could get anything you could in a food court in one restaurant. <laughs> I mean, my, my first thought was that's a lot. It's a very ambitious program. I'm kind of kidding, but kind of not. I mean, I don't know. I'm not saying you have to stick to one type of cuisine, but fusion, I don't know if they're calling themselves fusion or worldly or, you know, obviously global, whatnot. It's just, it's hard to know what the identity, the like core, core identity of this concept is, right? Right. Like if you you had to put it in one sentence, what is their core identity? Well, right. It's a a global romp through iconic dishes or something, I guess. But yeah, I wouldn't. It's it's you don't want to condemn a place before it opens, mm. but it is it's ambitious and it sounds like it would be 
tricky to execute so many different cuisines under the same roof, in the same kitchen, at the same time. Yeah, and people like, I mean, I don't know. When I, you and I talk about where we're going to go out to dinner, we're going to meet people, and what we're in the mood for, and right, we start with we start with a choir of cuisine, right? You want Tex-Mex, you want sushi, you want pizza, right? And then and then once we establish a category, then we pick a place. Yep. So I don't know. Where does this fit in? Because if they're doing all of these things. It's not if you and I are like, oh, we want a steakhouse tonight or we want Italian. Like, it's, this isn't going to pop off because it's going to be hard to categorize. Right. But maybe you go, I don't really want steak, but I could go for pasta. And I go, I don't really want pasta, but I could go for Indian food. And then, oh, well, let's just go to Traveler's Table, right? <laughs> that way you can get what you want and I can get what I want. Yeah. And we'll get that. They it's have good. this beautiful like looking vegetable plate that they're going to do. That's the, the picture, the lead picture in the Culture Map article. I mean... It all, if you, if you kind of squint, you can kind of see how it's going to come together. It so, will really be up to Jordan and the culinary team to execute at a really high level. It's a beautiful restaurant, so I hope they don't touch the interior. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, like, I don't know what their specific plans are, but... Literally no touchy. It's like, <laughs> it is the prettiest restaurant that's debuted in Houston in a long time when it was a key. So, right. you know, yeah. I just don't mess. Right. All right. Topic number three. La Calle, a downtown taqueria, opening a second location in the former Rico space at Bagby Park. You know, I don't I don't know that there's too much to say about this other than that I really enjoy La Calle. I don't get there very often, but when I am downtown, it's open all the time. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, late night, especially on the weekends. It's affordable. It's, I don't want to throw around the word authentic because what do I know? But it is very tasty. It's very affordable. This is, you know, this feels like the right kind of thing to open in Midtown. There's not, even though uh, Cyclone Anaya's is basically right across the street from it, it's a very different kind of experience. And I like that Ramon Soriano Tomka, the, the owner, plans to add a, a rooftop cantina if the city permitting office will let him. I think that makes better use of the space. Bagby Park's undergoing a bunch of renovations, new stage, this and that. It all kind of ties together for me. I mean, a concept like this at this price point downtown is probably going to do very, very well. Right. It's done very well downtown. I think it will do well in Midtown. You know, ton of bars in that area, ton of apartments, who doesn't like tacos? This just seems this just seems really easy, really straightforward. I agree. Okay. And briefly, topic number four, Tom and Tom's Coffee, a South Korea-based coffee shop and cafe coming to 5353 West Alabama, better known as our office building. This is uh, the second new food concept that Real estate developer Braun Enterprises is bringing to the building. They've also, they're also, Burger Chan is also coming. Uh, Mary, I don't, I don't know that you're going to have an opinion about Tom and Tom's. Their first Houston location hasn't opened yet. I'm really just bragging that the food in our office building is about to get a lot better. <laughs> you brag away. I, I really don't have an opinion on this one. <laughs> no, uh, but, you know, Tom and Tom's, 400 locations all across Asia. The first Houston location is going to open in a month or two at Bel Air Food Street in Chinatown. They are known for things like 
I mean, they have a full range of espresso beverages. They have a sweet potato latte that apparently is very acclaimed. Stuffed pretzels, tortilla pizzas. You know, I mean, what is the dominant coffee shop in the Galleria area? It's probably the Starbucks at Post Oak and Westheimer. That's one of the very few 24-hour Starbucks. Uh, Tom and Tom's definitely going to be something a little bit different for the area and maybe a little more approachable, a little more accessible than uh, a Starbucks that's just mobbed all the time. Yeah, I mean, it's nice to have something a little more, I'm not going to say quiet, but a little more accessible. The Starbucks in the Galleria area is insane. Yeah, so, you know, we'll see how this all shakes out. I look forward to trying Tom and Tom's when it opens. In Chinatown, I'm excited that we'll have a decent coffee option here in the building. And, oh, one other thing to note. Uh, the franchisee, the franchisee, easy for me to say, is Jason Cho. He's the owner of Dak and Bop in the Museum District. That's a, been a very, very successful Korean concept. Mm-hmm. You know, great Korean fried chicken. You know, really good Asian whiskey selection. So he's he's done well with one Korean concept, and so I'm very confident about his ability to do so with a second one. Excellent. All right. That does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurants of the week. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? So, Mary, for our restaurants of the week, I want to talk about a a new project from Justin Yu and Bobby Hugel, and then, of mm-hmm. course, Justin's signature restaurant. Let's start with Penny Quarter. This is the new wine bar that Justin and Bobby opened right next door to Anvil. It is, uh, it's the former Etro space. Yes, it is. Do you have memories of Etro? I have all the memories. Yes. Yes, I do. It was, it, it wasn't numbers level for me. Numbers is my immediate neighbor to Avondale Food and Wine, but it was definitely up there. Many a fun nights dancing to some great 80s music. Do you miss, so, but, but. Are you are you happy that Penny Quarter is here? Or you still... I'm ha- so I was sad to see Etro go away. I'm not going to lie, um, but it was. I'm excited Penny Quarter's here. It was very surreal and weird to be in the space the first time um, in daylight. Being in daylight, there were I thought there were no windows, but evidently there were at least one or two that uh, were kind of painted over in the previous space. So to see it light and bright and revisioned um, under Bobby Hugel's. A domain is kind of a cool thing to see. Yeah, it's it's a really nice renovation. You know, it's definitely been given the same kind of mid-century modern aesthetic that they achieved at Squabble. Mm-hmm. They've reworked the space. They moved the bar from one side of the room to the other. They did. All new furniture, obviously. They've opened up the windows. They added a, a door to the back parking lot, mm-hmm. making it a little bit more accessible. And then just, you know, for now, it's just... Coffee, beer, wine, and very simple cocktails. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fancy cocktails are next door at Anvil. Food will be via a food truck that'll launch in a couple of weeks. With exception of the Irish coffee, I, f- I, I feel that's a fancy cocktail. That is the one fancy cocktail. <laughs> and when I went this morning, I did treat myself to an Irish cocktail. Ooh, good for you. Well, I got a little work done. I felt like ironed Drinking it. on the job, I like it. It's all it's all in a day's work. That and that Irish coffee is beautiful. I mean that that cream that 
Alex Negranza just floats on the top of it. It's just rich and satisfying and sweet and delicious. This for me is kind of a culmination for the group, the most cohesive concept. I mean, I know Squabble, maybe maybe they would argue Squabble is, I don't know. But with Alex doing the coffee behind this and Tommy Ho uh, kind of managing both Anvil and this, Bobby being involved and obviously Justin Van doing wine and soon to come uh, Justin Yu doing food. Um, it will definitely be a nice neighborhood wine spot and a coffee spot, but really kind of leading with the wine program. Yeah, they, they're very focused on the wine program. I think that's what they want to be known primarily as yes. a wine bar with food. Mm-hmm. You know more about wine than I do. So what do you think no, of a little bit. Justin Van's? Hundred or so bottles, sixteen wines by the glass. I think I think it's a good number. I don't think the space calls for or could store, you know, significantly more than this, and it makes it manageable for the bartenders. It's a, it's a, I'm not going to say safe list, but there's plenty of safe choices for people that don't want to experiment. But there's also a little bit of experimentation. They've got some of my favorite wines from South Old Farms, which is a Texas winery in the High Plains, um, kind of cool. And the by the glass list is interesting enough to keep you going back. And um, they've got some great champagne, too. I had a La Hurt champagne, grower champagne there the other day. And um, it's nice for people that want to experiment with something other than your standard Fouve Clicquot B19 Abuzi champagnes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and open every day starting at 7 a.m. And they will serve... Alcohol. They will serve alcohol starting at 7 a.m. There's some some quirk on Sundays where I think you you have have to have food food before noon. It's our antiquated TABC laws. Yeah, it's some weird. Anyway, but, you know, my first thought uh, was not uh, degenerates going in for a glass of wine at 8 o'clock in the morning. My first thought was... It's going to be more than nurses, police officers, people who work overnight, yeah. you know, they get off shift. Like maybe they're, maybe they're tired of La Mexicana and Katz's, or maybe they just want, <laughs> maybe they just want an alternative. Uh, this will be a, a much more sophisticated, you know, wine offering than, than any of the usual places that are open and selling alcohol that early. Yeah. Uh, and then the food, the food menu hasn't started, but I did have the chance to talk to Justin Yu about it. He developed it with uh, Natasha Douglas, who's also the chef de cuisine for Better Luck Tomorrow. And what he said was he finds himself in Montrose frequently in the afternoons before a workout, and he doesn't feel like there's a lunch option that will both fuel the workout and not leave him feeling like sluggish after he eats. So this menu is, uh, you know, when I talked to Bobby about it, he used the word nutritious. (laughs) <laughs> you know, in the sense that it, it's That's satisfying, it, it's not it's not all healthy, quote unquote. But you know, they're doing a blended burger, right? You it's could have beef a hearty, and mushrooms. You could have a hearty meal, or you could have a lighter meal. There is some hard. There are hearty options on the menu. Yes, there are some heartier options on the menu, and, and it will fruit. work for dinner. But it's also possible to get or bar steak. Sorry. Yeah, but it's also possible to get, you know, a, some a eggs, decently avocado toast. Right. And I think so, you know, that's not ready yet. That's a couple of weeks away. But if you're wearing your yoga pants, you can eat here. That's right. That's right. Uh, vibrant. You're on notice. This is uh, this will this will pull a little of the a little of that vibrant breakfast and lunch crowd. Um, I did have a manual uh, bakery um, chocolate croissant 
today, and it's really it good. Was pretty delicious. Yeah, I had one of those too. <laughs> uh, that's Otto Sanchez's new product project. He was at Latab, and before that, he worked at some of the best restaurants in Vegas. Uh, I had tried to go over there on the weekends to buy those croissants, and they sell out really fast. So being able to get one in Montrose without driving over to their bakery at two ninety and six ten is definitely a boon for me. And I I feel like you know I don't I don't always go out in the mornings. It's pretty rare, but uh, I think Penny Quarter is definitely in the rotation for that. And then as a wine bar, as a as an alternative to Avondale, Camerata, Light Years, all the other stuff going on. I think it. I think it fits right in. I think it fits in. I think there is something to be said about what's going on in Montrose right now as a neighborhood and the wine and watering holes that there are. The neighborhood bars. This fits perfectly in because it caters to all price points. You can go high if you want to. You can go low if you want to. They've got wines by the glass at nine bucks, twelve, thirteen, eleven. So. Not everything is a $15, $17 glass of wine. And if they want to fit into the neighborhood, the pricing here is really important. So congrats to them for that. All right. And then I do just want to talk about you and I recently dined at Theodore Rex. Uh, kind of a catch-up meal for me. I had not eaten there yet in 2019. Yes. I know it's one of you. I, you know, we got there kind of right as the menu had sort of changed over for summer. Uh, we had a beautiful you know, melon salad. We had the new mushroom dish. We had a pasta. I mean, I, I mean, I'm just going to say, I think, you know, cemented in for me, at least that Theodore Rex is, is one of the most consistently satisfying meals in, in Houston and a place I should probably be eating more often. You and I talk about this a lot. Like, you know, we both eat out quite a bit And I would say we're pretty knowledgeable about what's going on in the city as a whole and dining trends and everything else. This is a restaurant that I find myself returning to time and time again, and it's for all sorts of reasons. Um, The menu is constantly evolving, which keeps it fresh. And, you know, you can revisit some favorite things like tomato toast, but you can try new things. Um, It's important to note that Justin's not always in the kitchen, but he has an amazing staff in place. Uh, Caitlin Steets is honestly one of my favorite chefs right now. Yeah, I, Caitlin Steets, chef de cuisine at, at Theodore Rex. And you know, again, I, I happened to run into Justin and we talked for a minute. He's been really impressed with the way she solidified the kitchen. She's got a very clear vision of the kind of food she wants to serve. And, and you know, I think when, when he first made the transition from Oxheart to Theodore Rex, he had a vision of it as maybe more casual, maybe slightly less ambitious from a culinary perspective. But, you know, in some ways the customers like still want ambitious food from him and that's the restaurant they go to to get it. Yeah. And so that's what they're doing, right? They're going to give people what they want. You can Um, have your comfort food here. Right now they've got a warm blueberry butter cake with sweet cream that's a favorite of mine. It's just, I don't know, it's a maybe like a child. It reminds me of my grandmother in some ways, which is kind of awesome. His pasta's killing it there right now. He's got yeah, ra- with the, the rabbit. braised rabbit in it is unreal. <laughs> it's a rich dish for summer, but my God, is it good. Uh, and then a couple of the newer dishes, he's got tart peaches um, going on. One of the dishes uh, is wonderful, as well as this arava melon brushed with cilantro. Mm. Piquant, I'm sure he's going to criticize just, just that. Pepper sweet, paste, so good. Sweet and spicy and satisfying. Maybe the best thing we ate that night. Tomato toast. Tomato toast, always on point. 
only dish that didn't really work for me was that beef tartare. Justin said we should have had the roll with it, and it would have balanced it. He's probably right. Okay. But yes, it w- that was the only dish. It was a little rich by itself, but I think if we had had the bread with it, it would have helped balance it. Yeah, we got the Dutch crunch roll with the ham, and we just kind of ate it by itself. Yeah. We should have maybe should have spread one on the other, but uh, you know, but nothing. Uh, certainly nothing about like you know one dish that didn't land for me personally. Yeah, uh, really changes my opinion that. This is still best in class. Yeah, it's, I mean a top, at, at its worst, a top ten Houston restaurant, and maybe even. <laughs> Maybe even ranked a little a little higher than that. So come on, Eric, give him a bump. I mean, it, I, it might be my number one. I don't know. It's it's definitely it, in my it's, top couple. It's it's a hundred percent. It's a hundred percent in the conversation for the best restaurant in Houston, and I know that that's Justin's ambition for it. And and it's his baby. Come on, it's a hundred percent his baby, and and still great. And uh, yeah, they're they're about to take a, they're about to take like a week off for uh, summer break towards the end of August, but. You know, when it reopens, certainly a, a place that um, if you're like me and you hadn't been in a while, it's worth revisiting. The happy if hour here never is been, pretty good, too. Yeah. Half hour. Uh, happy hour. Half off glasses and bottles of wine. So till six or six thirty. Yeah. One of the six, I think. I think six. Yeah. yeah. All right. Mary, before you get out of here, what is going on at Avondale? You, you do have something very exciting going on at Avondale. Uh, oh, I do. Tell you, me, you, you tell have, me. <laughs> you have dramatically increased the number of wines for sale in your wine shop. We have. Um, so when we first uh, opened this concept almost a year ago, we're coming up on a year. Uh, we had probably a hundred and fifty plus or minus wines in our retail section. They were all shoppable on a wall. Um, just with one bottle each so you could see, and then we would pull however many bottles uh, you ended up purchasing. But um, we decided to increase the amount of wine that we have and give it a more friendly shopping experience. So we have about 500 wines, and we have wine racks that you can kind of walk the aisles and shop by uh, varietals and country and uh, price points as well. So we have a 40 under 40 section with rosé, champagne, and then uh, get into kind of some of the funky natural wines and some of our favorite wines from Austria and Germany. And anyway, we're really, really proud of how far it's come and evolved and you have to listen to your customers. So kind of cool. Um, lots of changes. Come stop by and pick up a bottle of wine uh, for dinner or for a party. And then uh, coming up, we've got a rosé party uh, the week before Labor Day. So Thursday, let me check my calendar here. Thursday, the 22nd of August. So we're going to be cracking up in some of our favorite rosés, and they'll be available for retail purchase as well. It's the perfect time as we wind down summer, even though summer kind of goes into late September. Yeah, until like the <laughs> middle of October. But Right. <laughs> All right. Mary, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Eric. All right. I'll be right back with Chris Costantino. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? I'm joined this week by Chris Costantino. He is the chef owner of Rosalie Italian Soul, coming this fall to the C. Baldwin Hotel downtown. He's also a winner of Top Chef Masters. He's got a restaurant in San Francisco, a restaurant in Portland, Oregon. We're going to talk about all of that. Chris, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. It's warm. I mean, not not by our standards. <laughs> no, by my standards it is. <laughs> uh so one of the things you've, you've sort of said about Rosalie is that it's inspired by the cooking you experienced growing up by your grandmother. Yeah, my great-grandmother Rosalie uh, was uh, first 
you know, for me to, to really show me the Italian cuisine that was modified by the time they got here. You know, it's all based on what products were available to make what was as close to at home as they had. So is that how you got started cooking or, or how did you go from sort of cooking with your great grandmother to becoming a professional chef? So when I was a little kid, I mean, I wasn't cooking was not something I was interested in. It was surrounded me. You know, I had my great grandmother, Rosalie, who, you know, she would jar tomatoes. She would, you know, do all these things in her home. But then I would go back I mean, my parents were separated. So I would go back to my mom's house where my grandmother on that side would cook traditional New England fare. And we had, you know, shellfish and lobster boils because of New England. Right. So I had two very interesting childhoods growing up, you know, back and forth. But cooking wasn't the number one thing for me. Like I wanted to be a pro skateboarder, to be really honest. So I rode my skateboard everywhere and I would show up. Um, I would go and to visit my father in Providence and I would go see Rosalie, you know, and it was really cool. We'd go to her house and, you know, she lived on the top floor and she had a basement kitchen where she would do a lot of her putting up of tomatoes and things like that. And so as a little kid, it was always really cool to go over there. She always had tomato pie and dried pasta hanging. And it was it was nothing that I ever expected to become, but I didn't realize how much of a big imprint that made on me until I started to get a little bit older and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with myself. Right. So obviously the, the pro skateboarder thing didn't didn't quite come to fruition. or No, it didn't, unfortunately. But um, I, I did eventually get a skateboard out of it, pro <laughs> skateboard model. When did you, so, but you went to Johnson & Wales. I did. I went to Johnson & Wales in Providence, which was, um, you know, pretty much my hometown, you know, between where my dad lived and my mom lived. So I went to school for there for four years and I worked the whole time I was there, whether I was working at the university or I was working off campus at restaurants. I was doing front of the house. I wore away gloves and a tuxedo at one restaurant. Um, I did it all. I just, anything I could do to learn and grow. All right. So how did you make your way to the West Coast after after culinary school? So from culinary school, I um, after my senior year, I hunkered in at home. I had uh, knee surgery, so I spent the summer at home and um, started working on fishing boats again. Uh, my neighbors owned commercial fishing boats, and I started by you know repairing nets, and then I started doing a lot of interviews and ended up in Washington, D.C. So I ended up there with Chef Mark Miller. Uh, he had opened a restaurant called Red Sage. And it'd been open for about two years by the time I got there. And it was, I mean, over the top at that time, you know, um, I got, was in DC, worked with him for about a year and a half, two years, worked with Bob Kincaid at Kincaid's. And then one of the th consistent things that I kept noticing was all the boxes for wine at that time were coming from Napa and Sonoma. All the produce was saying California, California. And this was before everybody was buying everything from their local farmer's markets. And in D.C., they weren't getting everything from uh, Pennsylvania Dutch yet. You know, they did have some small markets, but it wasn't the majority of what the restaurants were getting. And it just kind of made sense to me. I was like, why is – at that time, there was no middle of the – there's not, not a lot going on in the middle, right? It wasn't like the whole middle of the country was popping off like it is now. It was – the coasts. And it was either New York or, or San Francisco. And I'd done a bunch of events in New York. I'd volunteered. I'd been a bunch of times. And at, my wife now, girlfriend then, had already been to San Francisco. And she said, well, do you want to go there? And I said, sure, why not? And we literally, six months later, we drove across country. All right. So 
you you worked around San Francisco. Eventually, you landed at Encanto, which is kind of when you became like a more prominent chef in your own right. Yeah, I was working for a, a ton of different chefs. You know, I was at Rubicon um, when Tracy Desjardins was there, and then I, I moved on to other restaurants. I worked for the Michael Mina Group back when it was the Aqua Group, um, and you know, when I got to Encanto, it was kind of by chance. I had been, uh, I was actually walked into the office of the chef I was working for at the time, who was a very good friend of mine, and I was helping him out. And I, I was being asked to come to the office to be terminated because the company that uh, we were both working for didn't have me in the budget anymore. So I was helping him, basically monitoring and double-checking everything, and the phone rang and somebody called, which was Mark Pastore, the owner of Encanto, calling Paul Aronstam, the chef at the time, saying, hey, I'm looking for a chef. And Paul just handed the phone to me right across the... <laughs> as he was letting me go, he handed the phone to me across the desk. And I was there for 12 years. Actually, 13 years. Yeah, and I mean, you... I, you know, I, I never had the opportunity to eat there, of course, but... Um, you you developed a reputation for this kind of rustic Italian cooking, this like a lot of nose to tail. I mean, what what kind of inspired that or or what was it about that style of cuisine that, that really spoke to you? Well, I think if you look at really traditional old world Italian, it's known as uh, Cucina Povera, which is the cuisine of the poor. And I think there's something to be said for that. Um, anybody can take a perfect steak and cook it perfectly. Right. Well, not cook it perfectly, but cook it. Right. Yeah. And you season it properly. I think to really look at the ingredients, I would go to the market, buy the bumper crops. The farmers would say, I have way too much of this. You need to help me. And I'd be like, all right, I'll buy half of it. You know, right. and I'll, I'll, I'll buy a, as a, much as like I can. A, a giant crate of beets or whatever. I mean, is. it was anything. And I would change the menu per every day. The menu would switch at least 75%. Um, we were making all our pastas in-house. We were extruding in-house after the first year. Everything we did, we did three breads in-house every day, everything we could. At one point in time, we had 25 different varietals of extra virgin olive oil, half of which were monocultivar, meaning one style of, of olive. So it got to be all-encompassing. Like I never stopped. Um, and it was really about embracing... There's so many different regions throughout Italy that really create the uniqueness of the cuisine. You may go from the north to the south and macaroni's macaroni, right? They still call it macaroni. It may be the same shape, but it may have a different name down south than it does up north, but the accompaniments are different. Within French cuisine, there was the standard mother sauces. Within Italy, it went from my grandma's better than your grandma. It could be the same sauce, but they used just a little bit more oregano or red wine vinegar instead of white wine vinegar. So that to me was so inspiring and and like it was revolutionary for me. The fact that I could go to the market, pick something up, come and do the research and find a place and origin and a time for it all. But then you start digging deeper and deeper and you're finding like Everybody's now is talking about fish sauce, like it's this amazing new thing. But who made it first? Was it the Asians or was it the Etruscans, which is the pre-Romans who had garum, which is the same thing. So you can do the historical research for all of the foods. And that's really what started getting me so deep, deep into it. And growing up, you know, having Rosalie cook the traditional American Italian food, I... 
I was like, this is like what I grew up with, but it's not. And how do I compare it to that? And where is she from? And how would I find this? And it was just a constant educational game. Right. And then so, but so then how did you become known for awful specifically? Because that's kind of your, your reputation. Yeah. I mean, which is really ironic considering it's only 3% of a menu ever that I've ever done. <laughs> so three items out of, you know, a full menu makes me become, you know, the awful the, the king, guts guy. the yeah. guts guy. Um, again, it goes back to Cucina Puvera, you know, the, the food of the poor. You know, I think when you start to look at the, what was looked at as everyday foods of Italy, you know, every place I went always had tripe. Every place I went always had liver. You know, there was always fegato and stripa and everything. It was always there. Every trip I went to Italy, it was always there. When I would go to the VFW halls like Mike's Kitchen in Rhode Island, they always had tripe. They always had liver. Uh, they had sofrit. They, they would have these things that most Anglos would snub their nose at. But it was the norm in Italy. It was the norm culturally. It was my great-grandmother's norm. So I kept looking at it and saying, well, if it's great for 75% of the planet, why isn't it great for us? Right? What's wrong with it? You start to look at these cuts of meat. Or, or more accurately, what's wrong with us? Yeah, I mean, we look at things. It's like, you know, kids eat chicken McNuggets, but really, there's no chicken in it. Right. But, you know, they always said, don't don't learn what's in a sausage because it'll scare you. But if you find a good sausage maker, it's all really good product. People are afraid, you know, but people love pate, right? Which has liver in it. And, you know, so it was really a big learning curve for me. It's like, I wanted to give respect to the animal. I mean, we were buying whole hogs. On an average, in one week, I would go through three whole lambs, 24 whole ducks. I would go through one 250-pound hog a week. Yeah. And, I mean, if you just if you just threw it all away, I mean, it would be... But I would break it down and weight. use every part. Right. And whether it was making charcuterie or salumi... Uh, because that's where Bocalone started, which was the salami company I, I founded with by then business partner, Mark Pastore, and my wife, Tatiana. You know, it was really ultimately about learning to master the craft without having to buy it from someplace of origin I didn't know. And that was really important to me. And But it's it's culturally, you know, offals are a part of everything. It's part of Mexican cuisine, Italian cuisine, Spanish cuisine, Chinese cuisine. Oh, well, yeah, no, I mean, look we at your fa. Well, right. I mean, we eat a lot of menudo in this town, right? I mean, we yeah. have some acknowledgement of, of that kind of so cooking. it became, I can yell. I don't have to yell at you to eat a carrot. I have to yell at you to eat something. You're, you're not really quite sure of what it is, right? Right. Let's be, let's be honest. So it's a lot easier to get a kid to eat a carrot. If I put down tripe and then a carrot, I said, okay, if you have to eat one, what are you going to eat? The kid's going to grab the carrot, right? Let's be honest. And so that's how it became this. Mon monster thing you know it's like oh my god i can't go there all he serves is organs well it was like three dishes on the menu and that was it but i became this and i'm happy to be the you know to be that voice i just think it's really funny that the, the perception versus reality of what we what we do at the restaurant and what people think we do at the restaurant are two completely different things right well and you did some you were doing some like food tv kind of at the same time right where I mean, like you, 
you did a couple episodes of top or not top chef uh iron chef right and uh yeah so i did i was on the first season of next iron chef uh when michael simon became the new iron chef um and then i had a, a small stint on food network for a little while mm-hmm. and then i quit doing food tv and then i did top chef masters just to cook for a charity and um other than that it's been pretty much so you're you're done you're you're done with food tv um you know if i had an opportunity to run my own show yeah and be my own like boss on it sure i'd do it but they're not going to give me that opportunity are you kidding me I mean, there's a lot. Well, there's like a lot of cool food, te- like David Chang's show on Netflix. Chang's really show is cool. great. I think there's a lot of great food changes going on in television right now. I think Roy Choi has created a great new series. I think the Netflix stuff is pretty incredible. There's a new taco one that just dropped. Yeah, I've I've watched a couple episodes. It's really great. I think the street food one is the bomb. Um, it's actually there's two two of the street food episodes were really powerful for me that really stepped you know, step the game up pretty heavy. Um, but, you know, I don't, nobody's knocking on my door to do food TV anymore. And it's not really, um, my goal right now is to give taste memories and constantly be evolving people that I work with and growing uh, our team and just really making things better on the plate. Yeah, so so let's talk about Rosalie then because that's going to be the, the taste memories you make here in Houston I mean, how much did you know about Houston kind of before you decided to open a restaurant here? I've known quite a bit about Houston. I mean, I, I've been fortunate enough to travel quite a bit. I came here and did um, a really short, quick through um, a couple of years back. But, you know, I was fortunate enough to meet Chris Shepard at Aspen. Um, God, I can't remember how many years ago that was now. It feels like it's forever. But it was, I think it was like four or five years ago. Whatever year he won Best New Chef, like we were all talking about stuff and food. And he's like, you got to come down and hang out with me. So he kept talking and talking to me and talking to me about it. And I was like, you know, I don't know. It's a long flight. I, I, I try to stay close. It's really hot. <laughs> it wasn't even the hot that bothered me. It's like, I just don't like sitting on a plane. <laughs> I'll be honest. Like it drives me nuts. And he kept, he Chris is great at really articulating what the beauties of Houston are. And he really, when this opportunity came to fruition and it was brought to my attention, I came down and spent a few days with Chris and Nick Wong. So Nick Wong used to work for me at Encanto okay. many, many years ago. And Nick was like, all right, I'm going to drive you around town. I'm going to show you around. And then he went to work and I had dinner. And then Chris showed me around and I mean, I eat pho like six times a week at home. So I was like pretty stoked <laughs> just on that alone. But just, I find that there's so much here, the cultural diversity, the availability of product, new product, things I've not even been able to use before. Um, the seafood here that's coming in that Chris has been able to show me is off the charts. And I'm really excited to be in a place that has that like right at my fingertips and have Chris be able to show me around and really make me feel welcome in a town that I'm not from. Yeah, I, I it's interesting to hear you say that you're excited about the products because you know, every time someone goes to California and they go to the farmer's markets or whatever, they, you know, they see all the produce and they're like, oh, this really like this is probably better than what we 
we get down here, but you're excited about what you found here so far. Well, it's different. Okay. You have to look at every city's different. Like not every, like you go to France, it's going to be different from one end of France to the other, right? You go to Spain, one part of Spain has different product than the other part. It's like, I can't expect to come here and have the same farmers that I have at home, but here I'm being introduced to new farmers and new things. And I love that aspect of it. It's like, you know, I'm going to have a meeting with, you know, a beef farmer. I'm meeting with some fishermen. I'm meeting, I'm looking at the shrimp you guys have here is mind blowing. Like, we don't get that. I don't have that access. And that, I mean, yeah, I may get sardines and, and Monterey squid, but I don't get the shrimp you guys have. So it's a whole new world. It's like new toys to play with. It's like a kid that goes to the sandbox and some kid brings a new toy. You want to play with the new toy. <laughs> right and that's what makes it really excitable and fun you know and i'm looking forward to really developing what we're doing around the products that are here and you guys have different growing seasons so i have to reconceptualize in my head timelines when things hit the menu and when they don't you know it's it makes for a different different time and it makes learning a constant thing and that's what i love about Cooking is we're forever learning. The products are different every single time, and it makes for a better experience for the guests and also a better experience for the staff in the kitchen. We're all growing together. So in terms of like a style of cuisine, are you going to be like traditional regional Italian? Are you going to be Italian-American? Like have you have you kind of settled on a Oh, direction? yeah. It's going to be like my great-grandmother's. Okay. So meaning we're going to – sorry, my nose is itchy. You can't see that out in podcast land. You can you can itch your nose. I'll 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 fill in for you for just a second. So, the thing about the food is it's you know I think American Italian food or Italian American, however you want to say it. Right. I mean, like you know, New Jersey red, meat, New right, Jersey red sauce, chicken parm. Yeah. So there's that was a derivative of Italians moving to the U.S. and not having the same ingredients they had when they were home, right? So how do you create that in a way? that's a little bit elevated, that's approachable, that's not uh, so far-fetched that people don't understand it, and but also there's a connectivity to it, right? Everybody knows chicken parm, eggplant parm. You know, there's managati or manakoti, depending on where you're, are you from New Jersey or are you from Rhode Island, how are you going to say it, what does it mean? So what are, what are we going to do is literally ultimately taking some of those classics that you may know and just torquing them a little bit. Just turn the knob. Just take it to 11. We're going to take it to 11. So I'm going to get chicken parm turned up to 11? Um, you're going to have a whole eggplant as a Parmesan turned up to 11. Nice. So we take a whole eggplant, we roast it, peel the outside, press it, and then we insert inside it three different types of cheese and three different herbs, and then we compress it, and then we bread it, and then mm. we roast the whole thing. So it's nice and crispy on the outside, creamy in the middle, and then you have all those cheeses on a bed of marinara. Like so, you're taking that eggplant parmesan that you know those flavors you love, and you're taking it up by I'm removing the skin off the eggplant because I've always found that that to be a little too tough, and you always pull the string. It's yeah, not a string; it's the eggplant skin. So we're just really pushing a little bit more and refining it, but yet keeping it grandma esque. You know, um, we're doing a whole chicken milanese to share. So take out one whole chicken, debone it. Pound it flat, flour, egg, bread, do the whole thing. Beautiful cherry tomato, cucumber salad, grilled lemon on the side. Done. Keep it clean. 
Yeah, and I and a, a whole handmade pasta program, right? That's, that's we're going to be doing extruded pastas. We have our own extruder in house. We have a whole handmade program going. We'll be doing in house focaccias, um, pizza doughs. I mean, we're like the pizza oven's killer. I'm really excited about that. Are you? I mean, you're you're in a downtown hotel. I don't I don't know if anyone's. There's kind of a, a interesting track record of ambitious restaurants in Houston hotels. Have you seen our hotel? I have not. I've heard good things. It's pretty rad. I mean, it's an homage to Houston. Yeah. So it's not like we're, it's not, you know, I'm not going to name names of other companies, but it's like not like we're plopping in town and saying, hey, check out our hotel. We're all over the world. You're going to love us here. No, this is an homage to Houston. You know, Baldwin, the C. Baldwin is based off of one individual who founded Houston right? She wasn't allowed to sign all those legal documents stating that she was buying land or helping facilitate all this project moving forward, this amazing city that you guys have, right? So it's all about powerful, strong women empowered to do a great thing, which was help build Houston. So the property's been rebuilt from top to bottom. It's absolutely stunning. The acres being opened up. It's really gorgeous out there. Um, you'll be able to sit inside, outside. There's the lobby bar. There's Rosalie. We're doing. I'm doing the whole food and beverage program for the whole hotel. Oh, nice. Okay. So we'll be doing in-room dining or in-room delivery. Excuse me. Um, not dining, delivery. It's different. <laughs> uh, and then are you? Are, I guess obviously you hired Annie Bayless, who used to be the general manager of Tony's, to work there. Correct. Uh, where where are you kind of in the hiring process? Have you found a chef de cuisine yet, for example? Or we have, we found a chef of the property. You, you're going to tell me who it is. So we have a a, a young woman coming in. Uh, she's actually on property right now. Uh, her name is Sasha Grumman. Um, Sasha worked with me when we opened Coxcomb Restaurant five years ago, but last she was at Laundrette in Austin. She's worked in L.A. She's worked through the Delfina Group. So super super strong, talented young lady who I've had the opportunity to work with in the past, who knows me, uh, who knows the style in which I like to cook, but also at the same time, she has a really strong palate, a strong vision, and can also execute like nobody's business. So I'm really excited to have her on board. Yeah, and Laundrette, I'm widely considered one of the best restaurants in Austin, so that she's that's certainly a good sign for coming to Houston. Yeah, she's really, it's just been, you know, when the when the project first started, the conversations first started, uh, Sasha had just moved to Austin and I was already courting her then trying to get her to come on board because, you know, I know what she's capable of and I have worked with her. And when you've worked with somebody in the past, I think it really, you know, both parties know what they're in for. You know, there's no, there's no hidden skeletons in the closet. And I think that that was what really for both of us sealed the deal. Like I completely trust her. So, and that to me is the most important thing, having the trust in who you're working with every day, collaborating and making sure that the plates and the food and the guests are always smiling. All right. So what's the, how's the construction going? Like, do you have like a rough timeline of when you expect to be open? September. And how much time do you think you'll be here? You'll get sick of me. (laughs) Trust me, you'll get sick of me. (laughs) So I'm here now for a week and then I go back home and then to Portland and then I'm back again for another two weeks and then I'm gone for two days and I'm back for another two weeks. You guys will get pretty darn sick of me quick. All right. You'll, yeah, I'll be hitting up all your spots. So, have, Oh yeah. Have you, have you found like a couple of favorite 
restaurants yet? You know, um, I love to go see Nick over at UB Preserve. I mean, that's just, I, I can sit there and harass him at the bar and eat some great food. Um, you know, the other one, I, I can't, I can't, for some reason or another, I can't say it properly. I think it's Fijis. Yes, that's correct. Fijis Barbecue. Fijis Barbecue. Um, I had a great, great lunch there one day. It was really, really exceptional. Those guys are doing a great job. Um, I mean, there's, I still have yet to go do um, a Viet Cajun boil. I'm, um, We're a little late in the season for that. I know, point. I heard. It wasn't, that wasn't what the, that wasn't what I wanted to hear from you. You're supposed come to be. Back in, come back in like February or March. You're fabricating lies to keep this white man <laughs> down right now. Um, so I think, you know, there's so many great things to see in the city. It's hard to pick just one. You know, the first time I got here, I got stuck in, in the Chris Shepard vortex, you know, wherever Chris took me was what I saw. And it's, and that's not a bad vortex to no, get stuck it's a, in. No, it's a very good place to be. He knows he knows he sh- where to eat. In and out, where to eat, where to buy things, you know, to see products. And it's been, you know, it's been rad, you know, and I'm I'm just really jazzed to get going. I just wanted I was in the kitchen today, you know, we have our pizza ovens in, they're laying the beautiful tile on it today. Um, double checking all the equipment, making sure it's where I wanted it, and going through all our pre-order of OS and E's and looking at plates and it's tomorrow, you know, we're doing our, um, our open house casting call for staff and employees. So we'll be meeting a bunch of people tomorrow. So it's, it's getting there. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well that, that brings me to the end of my questions, unless there's some aspect of Rosalie you, you feel like we haven't discussed that you want to, you know, I think, the room that what's I'm really excited about is just the feeling that people are going to get when they walk in. And I think that's something that it can't really be quite explained in words. You know, it's not going to feel like you're walking into a hotel restaurant. And that to me is one of the most important things. I want it to feel like you're walking into Rosalie's house. And that's the feeling you can feel when you walk into the room because of the design, the layout and the plant life and just everything about it just feels right. So it's, it, for me, it's been really fun because I was able to share pictures with our designer, which is Rohe designs um, out of Philly, what her house looked like and what some of the furniture looked like and what the feeling of it was. And she really was able to run with that in a way that it didn't look exactly like my great grandmother's house. Right. We're going to you don't, I mean, Rhode Island in the 70s. I, I have a grandmother that lived in Providence, too. You know, you, there's, only, yeah. there's only so much of that you want. Yeah, there's only so much uh, clear plastic over the couches you really want to have <laughs> and lace doilies. But it does resonate with people. That feeling resonates. And it's really, they hit the nail on the head. And it really, I'm really excited about it. Very nice. Which makes me extremely nervous and uh, very anxious to make sure this is really done right. Awesome. All right. So. Well, I always like to wrap these interviews up with something I call the lightning round. Cool. Five easy questions, five short answers. Okay. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. All right. Chris Cosentino, what is your favorite cookbook? Not fair. <laughs> I have over three. You've written a couple. I have over 3,000 in my house. Uh, what is my favorite cookbook? So skip. Next. All right. Fine. I'll think of that in a minute. All right. What's the first band you ever saw in concert? Oh, sh- 
on my own, like as as able. No, to- no. Like I, I count, I count the when my parents took me to see Michael Jackson because it's a cool story. So, no, whatever, whatever, however you choose to answer that question. Uh, Daryl Hall and John Oates. God, I hate camp. No, I just admitted that. There's like a whole yacht rock revival thing. You're totally fine. Yeah, but it doesn't make it cool. It wasn't no. cool back then. But some reason I thought it was. <laughs> the cool one was when I went and saw Jane's Addiction. And I didn't come home. And that was when, like, right after I got my license. <laughs> okay, that is pretty cool. <laughs> All right. What is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive through I don't have one. Okay. Honest to God, I don't. I haven't eaten anything from a drive through in, like, 20 years. All right. Who is your favorite San Francisco sports figure, past or present? Well, I'm I'm striking out on all of it, man. It's just this is a rough this is a rough lightning round. Uh, Bob Roll. All right, and then Do you know who Bob Roll is? I don't. Bob Roll is he's actually one of the commentators uh, for the Tour de France. He was one of the first U.S. cyclists to compete in the Tour de France with Team Seven Eleven in the '70s. He is my neighbor, and he is an amazing human, and he did things back in a time when nobody thought of U.S athlete could go and race in the Tour de France. So nice. Bob Roll. Uh, and then finally, what is your, when you go to a pizza restaurant for the first time, what is your go-to pizza order? Oh, straight up classic pepperoni. And the book, the book that I think is key for me, I'd say would have to be On Food and Cooking by Harold McGee. It's not a cookbook. It's funny. Nick Wong gave us the same answer uh, when he was on the show. I know, because Harold McGee is our neighbor <laughs> and used to come to Encanto every week. Nice. So it's it's one of those, it's a book I think that everybody needs to read to understand why things work, and it'll make you a better cook. All right. Well, give us the website and the social media and all that for Rosalie. Yeah. So it's uh, at Rosalie TX, uh, Rosalie Italian Soul for the website, which is going to be launching in about a week. They're doing all the final edits you know how that goes and you've got like a gazillion instagram followers at chris cosentino yeah yeah that's weird i started my own podcast but oh cool what's your podcast you. called uh losing your mind with chris cosentino <laughs> <laughs> so it's a mix of like chefs skaters music artists uh cyclists all across the board it's been quite fun but um you can usually find me at uh, chef chris cosentino uh, my website chef chris where everything's linked through and you can find it all through there Awesome. All right. You can follow me on Twitter at E. Sandler, on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week. Later, skaters. Later, skaters.